Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. This is Jeff Fedoten with Believe in Chiefs on the Believe Podcast Network, Kansas City's number one sports podcast network. The only place with a show for every team in Casey and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? On this week's show, former Chiefs offensive lineman Joe Valero and I uh, discuss a Chiefs legend from the past, Deron Cherry. But we're also going to go through some of the, the uh, news uh, from this week. But most importantly, we get to welcome, I get to welcome my partner in crime, Joe Valero, back <laughs> after his long, you called it a Griswold-esque uh, RV camping it, trip. Oh, yeah. I was definitely channeling some, some Clark Griswold and the family truckster. You know, if you can, you can picture, you know, Clark singing songs and with his family on a road trip, I was definitely the, uh, you know, the silly dad on, on the trip. But we had a great time. We, we did some camping through Pennsylvania uh, in, in an RV, which was fantastic. It was such a cool way to, to see some parts of Pennsylvania and go on what technically was our first like vacation in a long time outside of the house. And, uh, you know, because you can socially distance at campgrounds and, you know, you don't have to go into public bathrooms or restaurants or hotels and things like that. So we had this like little moving hotel. So it was a really neat way to, to kind of get our family out on the road a little bit and still try to maneuver and, you know, kind of uh, guide our way through this whole co- you know, the COVID restrictions that are going on in, in Pennsylvania from a social distance and distancing and a mask perspective. So it was, uh, you know, it was a really neat way to do it, Jeff. So yeah, I feel refreshed and ready to go, ready to talk some Chiefs, ready to talk Arrowhead, ready to talk to Ron Cherry and bring back, you know, to some fans who might not know him, you know, and might not know his thing to me, one of the most inf- influential uh, not just uh, Chiefs, but just you know NFL presences that that you know that that we have out there, and he's just a just a tremendous guy. And you know, I got some personal connections with him from being from the East Coast. So yeah, looking forward to it, bud. Great to be back. Great to have you back. And speaking of the COVID restrictions that set Joe and his family on an RV instead of the the usual yeah. way they uh, they travel, uh, those restrictions are forcing uh, teams and stadiums. To, to adjust some some uh, teams and areas like the Bears and Packers have already announced for the first several games no fans. Mm-hmm. The Chiefs just announced that they're going to uh, fill up like twenty two percent capacity, about seven seventeen thousand people. Joe, what is your take on that? And as a player, what would that be like to you're in front of some fans but not very many in a typical typically raucous arrowhead. Well, what's that going to be like for the chiefs? Yeah. Well, I mean, not to, not to make light of a very serious situation, but it's going to, it's kind of going to be like the first quarter at an old San Diego, San Diego chargers game at (laughs) at Jack Murphy stadium, because in San Diego, we always used to joke that, that, you know, they were typical California fans. They always got there late and left early. So, you know, sometimes in San Francisco or in, uh, in San Diego, we were playing, I think, in front of like 17,000 people at, at the opening kickoff. And then, and then the stadium would fill up. So it was kind of bizarre. So it's going to probably to some of the players feel like that, uh, you know, where you're, you know, you're back into, um, you know, sort of a, a high school or even maybe if you played at a small college environment with, you know, with that number of fans. Um, it, it's going to be bizarre. I mean, obviously, we're seeing some of it with baseball, right? We're seeing the NBA in the bubble. Um, we're seeing the cardboard cutouts in baseball. I mean, my gosh, it's so bizarre um, to see a major professional sport being played in front of no spectators, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I was watching the PGA Championship and, 
you know, I'm, I'm a golf fan and, uh, you know, I, uh, I was watching, you know, they're usually you're so used to seeing on championship Sunday and in, in, in a major, a major tournament like that, you're seeing all those fans lined along the fairway and to see just like two Supreme golfers teeing off on a, on a course with no people except for the marshals, you know, standing out there like, wait, <laughs> am I watching the right sport? Like it's, it's going to be bizarre. And I think football more than any sport, is going to be the most unusual, mm-hmm. um, I think, because of what crowds can do. Look, I know, I know there's a crowd effect for every sport. I, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not discounting what goes on in a basketball arena or a hockey arena or, or even a baseball stadium. You know, I don't want to discount the, the, fa- the effect of the fans in those environments. Because, you know, when it's, it, the, when it's three, three and two count and there's two outs and the fans are roaring in a baseball stadium, I get it. I get the adrenaline either for the pitcher or the batter. Um, but, you know, I think to me, football is actually one of those sports where the crowd becomes not just part of the game, they become an influential part of the game to, to the point where they're like a 13, you know, 12th player out there on the field because think about this. Like when, when we would go play Seattle when they were in the kingdom or we were going to mile high, you know, where we knew noise was going to be a factor. Marty coach Schottenheimer would get these huge speakers and he would line like four or five of them up on the, on the sidelines in the indoor facility, right. That we had. uh, And he would crank crowd noise. So we would run through our offensive and defensive team periods with crowd noise. That's how much of an impact the crowd has on a game. It changes what you do. It, you, you watch offensive linemen. There's so many techniques out there, right? There are some, some offenses where the center becomes the, you know, almost a signal caller, right? Mm-hmm. So they all look to the center for when the ball is going to be snapped to give the offense the best advantage they can. Because when you can't hear the quarterback, okay, and you've got a Derek Thomas, you've got, you know, uh, you know, a premier pass rusher out on the edge, you need every advantage you can get because they're going to get off on the ball and you're going to get off late. And you start out a step behind a Derek Thomas, you're sunk, mm-hmm. right? So when, when it, it, like the crowd becomes a part of it, right? And it's, it's a factor. And, and just using those couple of, you know, short little analogies and stories to, to tell our fans what it is like, it's, it changes the way you play. I mean, some people do, you know, you'll see the quarterback, he lifts his leg up and then there's a timing, you know, 1001 snap. Like there's all these machinations and all these strategies that you try to do to combat that. Coming into Arrowhead with 17,000, God love them. I, I know that they're going to be 17,000 really loud fans, but it's not going to have the, it's not going to have the effect of 83,000. And it's not going to give the defense the advantage that they're probably used to on a third and long situation where you're, you know, you pin in your ears back and you're going after the quarterback. I mean, those they're, you're going to be able to hear all the signals. You're going to be able to communicate as an offense and it's going to be, it's going to affect, it's going to affect the way that our defense uh, plays and it's going to give the offense back some advantage. So it's, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be unusual. I mean, as a player, to be honest, you know, when, when the stadium's packed and they're all, it's filled and everything, I mean, you do get to the point where when you become a, a veteran, you, not that you don't love seeing the fans there, please don't, don't get me wrong. It's not, it's not about seeing the fans or loving that they're there and having the home field advantage, 
But, you know, when you're playing a game like that, you do kind of zone everything else out. You can't really focus on it. It's more of the in-betweens where the crowd is getting you pumped up, right? It's third and long. It's, you know, whatever down and you're going into the goal line to score as an offense and you see everybody standing up and it does get you fired up. Um, and I think the players are going to, they're going to really miss that. I, I, you know, but you know, for the safety of, of our fans and the safety of the players and the community, you know, we're going to have to, they're going to have to take some precautions until we get this thing under control. A great point, great perspective about how, how the players will miss uh, some of that and how it does directly affect the games. Not only the pass rush, Chris Jones, Frank Clark benefiting from that, but also just the, you know, the five-yard penalties when, when the quarterback can't hear the snap. I remember going to a rainy Monday night game where, when Phyllis, Philip Rivers uh, spiked the ball in, in frustration because he, you know, couldn't get couldn't hear yeah. those uh, guys. But, you know, the, the perfect segue for this, it's funny, this, um, even if they're just under 17,000 capacity, that's still not the smallest crowd that has appeared in Arrowhead Stadium for a regular season game. There were some early 80s games that mm-hmm. Adam Teicher of ESPN reported uh, had those numbers because, you know, some of the more, uh, some of our younger listeners, younger Chiefs fans, even going back to the Dick Vermeil era of, of success, don't realize kind of what the Chiefs went through in the early 80s, in the late 70s, after being a great team in the early 70s, they had a real down period. Um, I, I'm old enough, I grew up, you know, when, when Nick Lowry was uh, maybe their best player, the kicker, and then the other guy who was around that really um, was their best player for a long time, Deron Cherry, who, who we're mm. going to talk about. Uh, Joe, kind of tell Chiefs fans what they need to know about uh, really an underrated guy who kind of bridged that gap from uh, the struggling Chiefs teams that he was there with you and Marty when, when the franchise kind of uh, resurrected itself. Yeah, I mean, Deron Cherry, what can I say about a guy? Number one, well, we had a local connection. So that, for me, that was really special. Jeff, um, you know, when, you know, uh, Duran grew up in Palmyra, New Jersey, right across the river from Philadelphia, um, not very far from, from where I grew up, uh, probably a 30 minute drive with no traffic, um, you know, in Philadelphia traffic, maybe 40 minutes. So really close geography, you know, growing up, you're going to Rutgers, uh, you know, here on the East coast. So, you know, Duran was a, was an East coast guy. And, and so, you know, Whenever, you know, look, when you're bringing geography together, right, and you're bringing players together, uh, you know, you do have kind of an affinity or, you know, kind of, of a, a relationship you build with the players that are from your area, right? Because you're new, you're, you're 22 years old, and you're coming out to a new place to live. And, you know, back then, especially the world was very, the world was very big, right? It's not like today, the world's so much smaller now mm-hmm. today, right? And people, you know, the geography doesn't have as much of an impact. But you know, when you're 22, when you were 22, back in the 90s, you know, and you're going across the country and you're from Philadelphia and you see a couple of players from Philadelphia, there's going to be a little connection there, right? And, and Duran was one of those guys that took players, you know, from the East Coast under his wing. Oh, here comes, you know, this guy from this school, Penn, or whether it was, you know, Todd McNair and Paul Palmer from Temple. I know who were in, in that era playing with Duran. You know, there was, there was a neat thing there. And so it was a really cool connection. 
um, to, to make with, with Duran right away. And then number one, you know, uh, when you got to know his story, I think that's where it gets really interesting. When you think about a guy who was really a walk on, right. When you, when you think about his career in the NFL and how he started as a punter, right. He was a, he, he really came into the NFL, you know, as a punter and really forced his way, you know, to into the chiefs as a free agent, yeah, you know, drafted free agent punter who ends up a Pro Bowl safety. So, I mean, yeah, that's nuts. it's um, unbelievable, right? Five times All Pro, uh, six-time Pro Bowler. I mean, you think about that, right? He was uh, he was the AFC Defensive Player of the Year in 1986 from the NFL 101. He was on the 80s All Decade team. He's in the you know, Chiefs was, Hall of Fame. I was going over his stats, and we'll we'll get to this too. I'm wondering if he gets down the line as a seniors candidate, a hall of fame consideration as I, as you're looking at these stats, you know, I can't believe he's not like, I can't believe that they haven't taken into consideration, you know, uh, how he got there. Right. Mm -hmm. And what, and the gap that he closed from, from going from an undrafted free agent punter who forced his way into the roster playing defensive back, which, you know, it's amazing accomplishment, right? I mean, I think some of the uh, some of the Hall of Fame, you know, obstacles he might have is the fact that he, you know, he wasn't like a super high, you know, draft pick from a Big Ten school or you know a Pac Ten school or one of the big, you know, big things. I mean, not that Rutgers doesn't play big time football, but you know, he just didn't come out of that and, Michigan. And ironically, now they have have emerged as a big 10 school right right right, <laughs> but, right but in the time back in the day when he yeah. played they were definitely not so yeah i mean i think i think so he has that to overcome i think he has to overcome the fact that you know just your perfect segue into into our conversation about duran you know playing in front of 17 15,000 people in, in a team that was kind of mired in mediocrity at the time you know that probably doesn't doesn't help and i you know i think i i just can't believe that you know they haven't taken into account that, like I said, to, that the gap that he closed, um, you know, winning the Byron Wizard White NFL Man of the Year Award in 1987. I mean, you're talking about a legend. Like, this is a Chiefs legend that I hope this podcast sparks some people to go on to the Chiefs website. There's a great video of Duran. Where are they now? Uh, maybe, you, you know, to, to see him talking in person and to hear his story um, on the Chiefs website, I would totally recommend our listeners doing that, getting out on the Wikipedia, seeing some of the things that he has done post-NFL. You know, he has been mega successful post-NFL. He, he, you know, he be, he's now the president of a, an Anheuser-Busch uh, beer distributorship or beverage distributor. He is a minority owner in the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars. He was the decades-long giving back to the community, um, you know, especially with his celebrity invitational and his golf outing. I mean, he is literally, to me, I, he's legendary. I, that's all Hall of Fame stuff for me and enough for me to let people know that you need to go, you want to be a real Chiefs fan, he's a guy you got to go look up and you got you to gotta keep his legacy alive. Um, not that he's not doing a great job of that, but as fans, I think he's somebody we need to make sure we continue to celebrate and we don't let get lost in the shuffle of time. You know, the shuffle of time, you, you know, you, you see the names on, in, the, in the ring of fame around Arrowhead and you kind of see their name and go, oh, yeah. But he's a guy that, you know, he went so far beyond where he was supposed to be when you think about a free agent punter out of a relatively small school back then to do what he did and then to have the success post NFL career. I mean, 
he's a guy you got to get to know. Uh, he's inspirational. I know he's inspirational to me. Tell us, Joe, um, about maybe like a play, even if it was during practice or a game, when you when you got there and you realized like, wow, this guy is is a heck of a player or a leader. Just give us some example of, of his abilities. I can remember a play distinctly in my rookie year when we had, you know, back then we were, you know, very smash mouth, right? Like it was Barry Word to the left, Christian Okoye to the right, couple of play action passes here and there. So we didn't really find ourselves going downfield much. Um, and we didn't really find ourselves, you know, as linemen getting out in space, right? We totally, we, we completely flipped the narrative when we br brought in the West Coast offense and Marcus and, and Joe came, but I'll never forget you know, one at a training camp, you know, thinking, no, no, remember, right. So here I was coming, you know, out of, you know, an Ivy League school. And I always joked that, you know, Christian Okoye as our tailback was bigger than any defensive lineman that I ever went against. Right. So <laughs> I had a lot of growing up to do when I made the transition to the NFL. And I'm, I'm not ashamed to say it, you know, and it was a tough, you know, it was tough. But at the very least, I always thought, well, I've got my size, right? At least I was a big, you know, big lineman, six, you know, six, five, 300 pounds, you know, I wasn't, and I'll never forget. So, so little, little did I know, right, that I was going to be blocking, you know, these big defensive linemen that I had to go against now, like the Neil Smiths and Derek Thomases and the Dan Salamuas of the world. At least I figured, well, at least, you know, the linebackers and the defensive backs, right? I mean, come on, they're, they're, they're. I can definitely handle that. And I will never forget, right, seeing that number 20 come up and fill. I had, had found myself on, a, on, on, on like a, a semi-zone blocking scheme, getting myself downfield because we broke a run in practice. Mm -hmm. And it was a live, live scrimmaging situation. And here I see this number 20 coming and I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm going back to my physics class again, you know, junior year in college, right? I'm force equals mass times acceleration, right? So I'm, I'm hustling down the field. Deron Cherry got under my pads and lit me up. I mean, he lit me up. And, and it was like, and he didn't do it. And it was, per, per, everything was clean. Everything was bug board because I was coming at him. He was coming at me. And I took my foot off the gas thinking, oh, here I am, the big, you know, lineman downfield. I'm going to swallow up this defensive back. And this, I mean, Deron trucked me. And he got under my pads and used his leverage and leveled me. And, uh, you know, of course, the gentleman that he was puts his hand up. Hey, Rook, you know, welcome to the NFL. And, you know, sorry about that, Philly. He called me Philly. He's like, sorry <laughs> about that, Philly. And, you know, it was like, wow. Like, I, I have got even more growing up to do when your defensive backs, right? And, he, and a free safety at that. It wasn't like he was like a, you know, he wasn't like he was a strong safety type, you know, guy that was, uh, you know, a linebacker and a defensive back you know, or, or like a, a defensive back and linebacker's body. I mean, he was a true free safety. I mean, he had speed, uh, you know, he had coverage ability and, uh, and, but man, he still, you know, wasn't, you know, cause it had been different, a little bit different if it was Kevin Ross, right. They called him, they didn't call him rock for nothing. He hit like a rock, but I'll never forget Deron putting that lick on me. And I'm thinking, all right, I am really in the NFL now. I knew it was going to be tough blocking the Neil Smiths of the world, but little did I know that free safeties were going to hit like that. I was like, oh my God, you know, this guy, this guy is for real. And, you know, obviously being a Philly guy, I knew all about him going in and uh, had, had the utmost respect uh, for him coming into camp knowing he was, quote, a Philly guy, even though he was from the Jersey side. Great, great story, Joe. That not only shows his ability, his toughness, but also just 
uh, what a class act he was. That, you know, he has yeah. helped you up very yeah. professional yeah. and knew exactly who you were. I'm also glad you mentioned Kevin Ross because Drawn Cherry, as the Chiefs kind of rebuilt their team um, at the beginning of the 90s, the secondary was really the heart of it. It was led by Deron Cherry. And mm-hmm. they had one of the best defensive backfields in the NFL with Kevin Ross, you mentioned, Albert yep. Lewis on the other corner, and then Lloyd Burris uh, was yeah. really a, a strength of the team. Um, Jeff, I'll, t- I'll let you into a little, just a little yeah. fandom. I have a football signed by all four of those oh, guys. Oh, very cool. I, I I made it a point, you know, we used to, we used to be able to get these like white paneled balls from our equipment folks and uh, you know, Alan Wright and Mike Davidson and, and uh, every once in a while they would, you know, say, does anybody need a, a white panel ball? And we would take them to the charity events and sign them for, for, for folks and, and things like that. And I, I'll never forget, you know, at the end of my rookie year saying, I've, I've got to get, the, the, I have to have a football signed by these four. I mean, that's just, you know, and then, and then the next year in 92, right. They, we draft Dale Carter in the first round, they bring him that's on right. board. Oh my gosh. Like it just talk about a backfield. And each one of those guys was in their way, uh, just such role models. I mean, they were, you know, you had not, not to take a, a, a turn from, from focusing on Duran, but you know, he, he really was, he did, he was such a part that was such a, he was such an integral part of that for that foursome, you know, um, when I look at each guy individually, you know, Albert Lewis was the quiet, you know, just total athlete. Right. I mean, I did not, he was probably one of the best athletes I've ever seen, you know, uh, play the game, you know, at least in my career, uh, live, see him play live. You know, yes, he was long, he was lean, he was fast, but he was all, so big he just was that you know prototypical corner that I think a lot of cornerbacks really built their you know careers on being like Albert Lewis Um, and then you had you know you had Lloyd Burris who I saw come back from one of the worst injuries I've ever seen I was in the weight room when it happened and Lloyd tore his pectoral muscle and um, he was on the bench press and and it like not to be gross or or, or to, you know, make anybody's stomach turn, but like it, 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 it literally snapped from his shoulder where it attaches and rolled up like a window shade right into his, you know, the bottom of his pectoral, you know, area. And it just like a lump of muscle. And we were in the weight room when that happened. I mean, for him to handle that, get that staple back and then come back and play. No one thought that was going to happen at especially his age. He was really getting up there at that point. Uh, just a class act, tough, you know, and then you get to Kevin Ross, who was literally just, I mean, literally one of the toughest people, undersized, you know, on the height side, you know, humongous body. I mean, he just had just, you know, he was built like that's, they called him the rock because he was like the rock. He was the original, you know, Dwayne Johnson almost, but he wasn't a real big stature guy, but man, he hit like a ton of bricks. And then, and then you got Duran, who was kind of the leader of that crew. It just, he just, it just inter- he intertwined his leadership and 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 brought that that crew along and then and then to bring Dale Carter into that fold it was a, it was amazing backfield i mean you know and i think part of the reason why you know we always focused in that era on the defense with the chiefs right and that's what i think the 90s teams were built on and 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 that defense that defense may and i'm going to i'm going to make a this a huge stretch here but I think that defense was part of the reason why we never had 
taken the chance on a on a on a young quarterback and let that young quarterback fail because the defense was so good, so stinking good that Marty felt like, well, if we can just get somebody in to not lose games and to be a game manager, starting with you know Ron Jaworski, right, uh, who came in, and then you know, and then you you guys get names like Mark Vlasic and Steve DeBerg and you know. Uh, Dave Craig and then Joe Montana, you know, Steve Bono. Like, I'm not saying they weren't great quarterbacks, but that defense was so good that we didn't want to afford ourselves the opportunity to not get to the to the playoffs or Super Bowl by going with a young quarterback who who was probably gonna fail. So I think that defense almost in some ways held us back, if that even makes sense to our fans. Like it just kind of held us back because you look at like what the Cowboys did with Troy Aikman. They just went, look, I don't care if we go one and 15. He's our guy. We're going to let him develop right. this they're team. They started and, from nothing. And they're yeah. like, we've got to totally rebuild yeah. and start yeah. with when you already have that elite defense. No, that, that's a, a great point. Um, back, back to Duran a little bit. Yeah. Such a cool story when, you, when he, was call, he called you Philly and stuff. Tell us a mm-hmm. little bit more about what he was like and how he did take you under uh, his wing, you know, with that East Coast connection. Yeah, he he just he had a um, he had a real penchant for mentoring younger players, right? And there's never that many, right, on a team. I mean, you're mm-hmm. you're lucky, you know, back or you know, twelve draft picks and and a couple free agents that would come into um, you know into the roster, and you know by the end of the season, you know, you're kind of lucky if you're one of you know six or seven that are left, right? I mean, there's never never an abundance of rookies on a team, especially back then. Um, and you know, he just was one of those guys that was always asking you, how are you doing? You know, how are you doing Rook? How are you doing? Things going well, what's going on? How's your family? And you know, his, uh, his wife, uh, at the time was, uh, you know, also very involved in bringing the other wives along, uh, from like, you know, when we had Jen on talking about the chief's wives charities and his wife was super involved and, you know, uh, he was, he was getting older. So his kid, you know, he did have children, uh, at the time because he had played so long. Um, some of his kids were, were around and you could tell that he was just, ah, just unbelievable dad, fantastic husband, you know, just a, a class act, that you wanted to emulate, you you wanted to be like him, like everybody wanted to be like Duran. You know, he just had it all. He was just that. He was the epitome of a professional. He had his eye on the future, right? He was getting involved in business interests and things while he was playing, and you know, transitioned very quickly into into uh, you know becoming you know a beverage mogul, uh, and then and then getting into the Jaguars organization as as a minority owner. So, like, just one of those guys that everybody wanted to be like and 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 he always went out of his way with a friendly smile a pick me up uh you know how you doing rook you know how are things going and i was just super lucky that we had that philly connection and, and he was able to do that so I, I felt very lucky that uh he was always looking out for us any last uh duran cherry stories that you want to leave our listeners with before we wrap up here joe yeah i think i think what I guess, I guess, I guess if I had to describe him in, in a couple of words, it was his smile. You know, I think Duran, if you go and watch that, where are they now video, which, you know, I knew we were going to be talking about Duran, so I refreshed myself by watching it. I think if you look at his demeanor, um, he, he was one of those players that gave me a lot of encouragement 
from even just from a distance watching the way that he interacted because he was so nice. Like he was now look, you put, you go between the white lines, you're playing football, you're competing. I get that. Um, but as a human being, he didn't, he never took that same football player's demeanor outside of the white lines. And, you know, it, it was his smile. It was his calm, cool demeanor that, I think was very inspiring for someone like me because I'm kind of that same way. I'm not, I'm not a, uh, you know, I'm not a, we, we used to, we used to call, uh, we used to, and it's going to sound really gross, but we used to call them snot bubblers. Uh, you know, there were those players that just huffed and puffed themselves into, you know, into a frenzy when they were playing. And then sometimes they couldn't, they couldn't turn that, that switch off when they left the field. Sure. But Duran just approached it very professionally. Yes. I'm going to be, I'm going to be a real badass out on the field and that's that because that's the game and I'm going to compete to the highest and which he did. You don't get to be a six-time pro bowler and you know be on the ring of fame by by not being a competitor. But the thing about a Duran Cherry is was his like I said it was his demeanor and smile and the way that he treated people outside of of the stadium, outside of the white lines, outside of the locker room, in the locker room, the way that he treated people that I think really sets somebody like him apart that I've always tried to, to use him as a, as a role model in my life, the way that you conduct yourself as a, as a player. And then now as a former player. Well put Joe. Um, yeah. So Chiefs fans out there, definitely check out the, where are they now that uh, Joe mentioned on the, on the chief's website to, to learn even more about, Duran Cherry, a player you really need to know. Well, if you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. We're available on your favorite directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.